listening to the Best of Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Be sure to catch our show live every Sunday on 1370 AM Austin. For information, archives, and upcoming presentations, visit our website at www.livingwealthyradio.com. If you're a business owner who wants to sell your successful company, then you need to pay careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. Selling a business in today's crazy-making economy is not for the faint of heart. A successful sale requires courage, resolve, and a big pair of um, free selling tools. Get your free risk analysis tool and special report today from the only company that can help you sell your business in 49 days or less and pay zero taxes. Go to www.deltabusinessservices.com forward slash exit coach to download yours today. That's www.deltabusinessservices.com or call us at 210-369-4161. Tell them the guy with the sexy voice sent you. Sunday, Austin. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio 1370 AM and 96.3 FM, streaming live at talk1370.com. Security cameras, red light cameras, webcams, is there ever a moment we aren't being filmed? Social media, websites, mobile phones, cars that know your exact location at all times, banks, financial institutions, everything we buy, everything we think, we do, is being recorded. The government, in the name of keeping us safe, is becoming more and more intrusive. Dr. Catherine Albright, you are considered the world's premier privacy expert. You have a Ph.D. from Harvard. Do we have any privacy left, or is that a concept that no longer applies in our society? You know, I think there's a temptation to get discouraged or pessimistic about it, but I've been doing this privacy advocacy work since 1999, and I think that I'm, I'm actually optimistic because I think for the first time, large swaths of people are actually beginning to wake up and realize that their privacy has been threatened by all of these technologies and, and by developments, by marketers, by government, by hackers, by thieves, by stalkers. I, I think the average person is aware of privacy issues to a greater extent than at any time in my work. And I find that encouraging because what it means is that when there is a big privacy Oh, I don't know, a flap like we had back in uh, April earlier this year when Google made some major privacy changes to how it runs all of its services. Had that happened 10 years ago, I don't think anybody would have blinked. When it happened in April, it caused a huge um, shift of people away from using Google services, for example, and over to using private alternatives. And one of those I'm excited that uh, I was able to play a role in helping to launch, which is StartPage, the Mm -hmm. private search engine alternative to Google. And I think the marketplace now is in a place where it's supporting alternatives in a way that it wasn't before. So not only do we have StartPage as a Google alternative where people can do their searches without having their IP address recorded and tracking cookies placed on their browser and a record made of everything they search for, but we are actually now working on um, our very first paid product, which is Start Mail, which will be a private email service. It's an alternative to Gmail. 
And Gmail, people may or may not realize this, most people probably don't realize this, but if you have a Gmail account, or even if you just write to someone with a Gmail account, everything that you write in your email is carefully analyzed by Google's computers. They take out all the keywords, all the concepts. If you write about a trip to Bermuda next, next you know, February, they'll know about it. They put all of that in the profile that they're keeping on you. They combine it with all the other information that they have based on the things you search for and how you use Google Books and which pages you underline and your use of Google Maps and you name it, Google Calendar, Google Voice. They're creating this unbelievably detailed dossier of information on individuals and they're using your correspondence as one of the key cornerstones of information for that, which is that Gmail account. And what I always say to people is, you know, everybody says, oh, it's so great. There's all these free services on the Internet, and Google gives us free email and free this and that. And I always say, well, there's no such thing as free <laughs> because somebody is being paid. somebody's paying. And if it's not you, then you have to realize that, you're not getting free goods and services. You have become the product yourself, and you are being packaged and observed and marketed and sliced and diced and sold to third parties. So uh, we are kind of trying to change that paradigm, and that's why I'm a little bit, I, I have to say, optimistic, because for the first time in the 10, 12 years I've been working on these issues, people are actually starting to wake up and realize that it's time to make some changes. Well, there are those who think or those who say, I've got nothing to hide. Who cares if they've got all this information? It's boring stuff anyways, right? What do you say to that? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways you can look at it. First of all, if you say I have nothing to hide, eventually the people who are looking to get your information are going to push into one of your boundary areas, and then you'll have no protection. A uh, great example is Kim Kardashian. Uh, people may uh, have seen Kim Kardashian revealing the most outrageous of personal information on her TV show. She even had uh, film cameras come in as they were, uh, as her doctor was examining eczema on her leg. I mean, talk about something that most Crazy. of us would probably want to have private, but there she was with millions of people tuned in to watch. Right. And so you would think Kim Kardashian would be a perfect example of someone who would say, well, I don't care about privacy, I have nothing to hide. Until, of course, it begins pushing into her private life, and she recently actually made a plea to the paparazzi to please respect her privacy. So I think it's very interesting that when we say, well, I have nothing to hide and my privacy doesn't matter to me, what we're really trying to say is that the line where you've drawn for your privacy is not the same place I've drawn the line for my privacy. But I'll guarantee you that every single person drawing breath right now has a line where they draw for their privacy. And if you found out that there were you know, cameras uh, witnessing your, your most intimate conversations or microphones recording the things that you truly wanted to be kept private, I think there's not a person alive who wouldn't be horrified by that. And hasn't our society become somewhat like the Kardashians? And with using Facebook and social media and the the web, you know, we're revealing so much of ourselves. Well, it's become very fashionable. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a friend who uh, had a daughter in a Texas high school. And she said her daughter came home one day and said, Mom, you won't believe the poster that my English teacher put up on the wall in my English class. It says, a life that is not recorded is not worth living. And we were looking at that going, wait a minute, what in the world? Have we really gotten to the point where your life doesn't even count unless you're recording it and putting it up and publishing it for other people to review and approve of and applaud? 
And that's a that's a really new notion. I remember when the Big Brother television series came out, uh, those of us of a, a slightly older generation, we were horrified at the idea that you would put actual cameras and microphones in a home mm-hmm. and then watch people as they walked around and talked and had their relationships and their spats and, and their romances and all the things that people do. And I think that 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 move, you know, it's in part it was the writer's strike because no longer were there these carefully crafted sitcoms and dramas. They wanted cheap TV. And so they started taking regular people and putting them on TV, and it made everybody think, hey, if I could just get my everyday life, you know, up on the screen, then I would be validated too. So I think it gave everybody an opportunity to see themselves as as a movie star or the star of their own private, you know, universe of, of stardom. But the, the problem is that plays directly into the hands of the people who would like to take our privacy away for very different reasons. And that is the government, which would very much like, uh, has always wanted from the beginning of time, governments have always wanted to know what was on everybody's minds all the time so that the uh, creepy people who are corrupt and at the top of the the heap in terms of government can silence whistleblowers and, and keep their position. So they've always wanted to be able to know what people are up to. You've got uh, Madison Avenue, the people who create all of the advertising and, and indirectly create all of the television content, the movie content, and they very much would like you to not have any privacy because the more you tell them about yourself, the more they can get you to part with your money, the more stuff they can sell to you. And yeah, I, I think just across the board, the forces that are influencing young people and passing along cultural values have moved away from being previous generations, you know, their their parents and grandparents and, and peers and community, and have instead become these forces that really want us to have lots of self-disclosure and have made it very fashionable to do that. So I think it's really going to be until people start getting burned in very public ways and in very personal ways, I, I, I think we're kind of looking at two very competing interests. This one side that says, the more I can tell you, the better, and the other side that says, but hang on a second, if I tell you too much or if you find out too much about me, that's going to come back and bite me. How did you begin to have an interest in this area? It was many years ago before really people were were even aware that privacy should be a concern. Yeah, back in 1999, I was a graduate student at Harvard. My research was on a completely different area. My my degree is actually in human development and psychology. And I was actually looking at the impact that computer-mediated communication, like online communication, was having on people's marriages. So I, I was more interested in communications. and I've always been interested in technology and how it impacts society and how it impacts individuals and, and their psychology. But I really hadn't um, delved into the privacy arena at all until in 1999, my local Safeway supermarket in San Jose, California, came out with a frequent shopper card. And I was spending half of my year in California and the other half in Cambridge, Massachusetts, going to Harvard. And I found myself having two different wallets, one for Massachusetts and one for California, because every place I went back in the 90s, somebody was asking me for my card. Do you have your this card? Do you have your that card? Do you have your the other card? Do you have mm-hmm. And I felt like every time I walked through the door of a store, that I was being asked, you know, now we want the three of spades. Now we want the eight of diamonds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we want the queen of hearts. And I was just going through this huge stack. I mean, it was probably a half an inch thick of just cards. And one day, 
it really dawned on me that each one of those individual cards represented a numbered computer account, and that each of those numbered computer accounts represented a huge amount of personal information about me. And the ones that I found the most offensive as I began to really think about the implications of this for Liberty were the supermarket cards. Because for the first time in the 1990s, and it really wasn't in full swing until this last decade, so it was just kind of midway through the cycle of introducing those awful things, when they started putting those cards out, the bonus card, the rewards card, the savings card, the club card, they gave them all these different names. But uh, it, it, it began to dawn on me that what we were doing was presenting a registered, a, a numbered ID card to buy registered food. So in a way, in the same way that people say, well, I don't want to have to register my gun because registration is the first step to control and confiscation. It began to dawn on me that registering all of our food was probably a really bad idea. Well, go into that a little bit more. What do you mean by registered food? Well, when you scan a frequent shopper card at your grocery store, you are, without, without even knowing it, because the stores didn't tell us this when they first rolled these cards out, those are food registration programs. You are registering into their database the fact that you purchased you know, 12 ounces of, of organic spinach or uh, a six-pack of Budweiser or a filet mignon or some uh, Hostess Ho-Hos. You are registering each of those individual items is recorded and stored in a database. And what people don't realize is that behind the scenes of those grocery store frequent shopper cards are these unbelievably complex uh, data mining and data analysis tools. They can actually now, um, I'll name a couple of stores that are doing this. Safeway's doing this. Stop and Shop, the biggest grocery store here in in New England, is doing it. Uh, Other stores who have rumors are doing it. They've actually now taken all of the information that they know about what you buy when you scan your frequent shopper card. They itemize each individual item and put it all in your, in your record. But now they're analyzing it, breaking it down into a, a, a complex and specific nutritional profile of each individual thing that you have purchased, how much um, fatty, you know, uh, saturated fat, how much sodium, how much sugar, how much, uh, how many milligrams of vitamin C you consumed, all of it, breaking it down to these extraordinarily complex nutritional profiles and then using that and translating them into health profiles. And in fact, uh, I asked Kurt Avalon, the VP of New Technology for Stop and Shop, the big um, grocery chain out here, I said, well, what are you going to do with all that? You know, that's expensive. It's, here you're telling people you're saving them money, but it certainly wasn't free for you guys to invest in all that hardware and software and data management and, and data storage. He said, oh, yeah, well, we hope to recoup our investment by sharing that information with HMOs. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So that means that your HMO could know, your HMO could make a decision to deny you uh, coverage on a claim now that we're moving into national health care. Mm-hmm. The government could access your grocery store records and say, well, you don't qualify for a heart bypass. Look how you've been eating. Mm-hmm. You know, you know better than to, to eat full fat, you know, beef and, and the sorts of things that you're consuming. So, no, you don't even qualify. And right now, under existing laws, the health insurance companies, for the most part, don't even have to tell you why they turn you down for certain procedures or, or cancel your claim. Mm-hmm. So underneath the scenes, you know, behind the scenes, under the surface of these seemingly innocuous little discount cards is this complete um, juggernaut of a data industry. And we found that not only were they doing that, but uh, after 9-11, 
the uh, several supermarkets actually turned over their shopper card records to the federal government so they could identify who were, was Middle Eastern based on the composition of their grocery cart. You know, if they buy a lot of chickpeas and eggplant and, and sesame, they may be Middle Eastern. And so they were actually able to racially profile households on the basis of those records. Um, they've used those records in court cases. There was one case where a guy was involved in a custody dispute with his ex-wife, and her attorneys subpoenaed his shopping record and found a purchase of an expensive bottle of red wine and used that one purchase to claim that that guy was lying about his income because if he was as poor as he claimed, he couldn't have afforded that bottle of wine. Uh, we know that those records have been used in court cases. There was one case where a guy uh, slipped and fell in a negligent yogurt spill on an Albertsons uh, supermarket floor, shattered his kneecap. He was a retired tow truck driver and had to have all this reconstructive surgery on his knee because uh, they'd left a spill. It really was something that uh, normally they would pay for. And their attorneys said, well, you know, we just subpoenaed his shopper card record, and we see he buys a lot of alcohol. So if you if you take this case to court, we're going to paint him as a falling down drunk. So, you know, these records come back and they haunt people in, in ways that I think um, you don't normally realize. My doctoral dissertation work at Harvard was to travel around the country and interview hundreds of grocery store shoppers and ask them, if they knew that the shopper card that they were scanning was making a record of all of their individual purchases, and over 75% of people said, heck no, they're not doing that, and they were all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only purpose of the card. That's why it's there. It's there actually for two reasons. Number one is to record and register all of your food so they know everything that you've purchased. And the second reason is to deny the discounts to the 20 or 30% of people who don't use the card. So when a store gets, um, let, let's say it's uh, Breyer's ice cream in the month of February, and you see that instead of being $6, it's $4. Well, the $2, you, you, the, the store wants you to believe that they're the ones giving you the discount, but the reality is it's Breyer's giving the discount to the store because Breyer's wants to move ice cream in the month of February, which is kind of a slow-moving month. So they will offer the discount. And in the old days, and by old I mean like 15 years ago, it used to be that when Briars gave you two bucks off ice cream, the store would put it in their flyer and they'd use it as advertisement to, to bring you in, and then everybody would get $2 off their ice cream, and Briars would be happy because they'd sell more. store would be happy because you shop there instead of the competitor. You'd be happy because you saved your two bucks. But once you add the shopper card into the mix, then only the 70 or 80% of shoppers in the store are going to qualify for that $2 discount. And the ones who don't present the card are going to be paying a $2 premium. So the store rakes up that $2 difference because they're selling something that is at a normal price for them. Now they're getting an extra 2 bucks for nothing. Mm-hmm. So that's what justifies all of the cost and the expense and the printing and the management of all of this chaos of trying to manage these cards is the fact that 20 to 30% of people don't scan them. And I used to think, are those like just super rich people, you know, who send their maids to the store and they just don't care about discounts until I was actually in one of those stores and I was standing behind a man who put like three peaches on the conveyor belt and the cashier rang it up and said, that'll be $7. And the guy is reaching into his wallet, you know, she says, do you have your frequent shopper card? He says, am I what? You know, he can't even hear her. And he's reaching into his wallet to pull out seven bucks. 
And finally, uh, another shopper said, no, no, here, scan my card. And with the discount, it came down to like 250 Oh, my goodness. So that's the kind of thing that they do is it's the people who are elderly, the people who don't speak English, the people who are traveling from out of town, the people who are, you know, maybe their kids, people who for one reason or another aren't complying with this little data collection scheme. And they are paying through the nose because they're paying actually a, 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 a premium. Not that they're not getting a discount. They're actually paying additional money on top of what they would normally be paying. So it's it's really a scam all the way around. Well, just a few comments to, to what you've said. Number one, the collection of data and the and the marketing of data and the sales of data is, is a huge, huge industry. The insurance industry, when they're deciding whether to insure someone, you know, the data they collect, it also includes the magazines that you subscribe to. And so they are building this profile, not just of perhaps your nutritional, you know, what you eat, what you buy, you know, in terms of what you feed your family, but also the kind of books that you read, the kind of subscriptions to magazines, um, what you're reading, how you're thinking. So they're they're making up a profile of who we are. It's shocking, isn't it? What it's we right found theory. just in the supermarkets alone that they can purchase something called a penetration profile on their shoppers to augment the data that they know about you based on your, your supermarket purchases. You know, they know if you have a cat. They know if you have dandruff. They know if you have a baby. They know if you get married. They know all these things. They know if you're Jewish and celebrating Passover. So all of these things are tracked and, and duly monitored because of what you buy. But just as you were saying, they can also purchase these additional profiles of you that say the value of your home, your most recent tax bill, your political uh, affiliation and, and registration. I mean, it's unbelievable what, what they can pack into there. And I used to think that you know that was about as bad as it could get until the Internet really started becoming the, the key place of uh, privacy invasion. So we've got the, these databases being kept by the marketers, by the way, I should point out that I was an undergraduate marketing major years ago, and I, in the course of doing all of this research into data collection, I discovered that there are some interesting ethics studies on college majors. And one of the things they, they, that researchers have done is they've surveyed uh, all of the different university majors across all the disciplines looking at their ethical behavior and their ethical outlook. And they found that of all the different university majors, the least ethical are the business majors. <laughs> and then they said, okay, well, that's very interesting. So now let's take a look at the business majors. You've got people in accounting, finance, marketing, entrepreneurship, all these different areas, organizational behavior management. So let's now administer some ethics tests to those guys. And they found that hands down, of the least ethical uh, of everybody who were the business majors, the least ethical of those were the marketing majors. Really? So these are the people who we have given some of society's most powerful data management tools and data collecting and surveillance tools are in the hands of the least ethical people in our entire society. So it is no wonder that you're finding things like, uh, what was it recently, Angry Birds, which you can play on your smartphone. Mm -hmm. uh, they just discovered that Angry Birds was filtering all sorts of information. They were capturing information from people's address books, and it was filtering information and funneling information about their GPS location. And all this stuff, just so you could play a little bird game. And we really have no privacy. It's just an illusion of privacy, what we have. Well, to a certain you know, degree. whenever people say that, I say, whoa, time out, because 
if you once you think that the battle is gone and lost, then you stop fighting it. There are enormous swaths of privacy that we do have, and I think it's really crucial that people recognize, cherish, and defend the areas of privacy that we have left. Now, granted, there's a lot of swaths of our privacy that have been decimated, and I think that definitely we, we need to figure out how to reclaim a lot of that. Well, and, but, and, let's, and let's let's talk about that for a second. We've got, um, they know what we eat, they know where we go, they well, know they where we're Well, they don't know living. what I eat because I pay cash. Okay. And, and what if you pay with a credit go, card? They don't know where I go because I have turned off the GPS on my phone, and I only use my phone when I intend to make a phone call. So when you say they know this and that and the other, well, if you're if you're kind of in the default crowd, you know when you get a computer, it's got Microsoft Word, and the default is Times New Roman 12-point? Mm-hmm. All right, well, if you just take everything that you're given and you leave it in the default setting, then yes, your privacy is going to be invaded 27 ways to Sunday. <clears throat> if, on the other hand, you do what I do, which is I got a new computer, and I said, forget this Windows garbage, I'm putting Linux on here. And forget this Microsoft Word stuff. I'm going to get Open Office and forget Times New Roman. I'm putting Arial on there, and I don't like 12 point. I'm going to do 10 point. So when you begin making conscious decisions about what technology you're going to use and how you're going to use it, obviously it doesn't matter whether you're writing in Times New Roman or Arial for from a privacy perspective, but it matters an awful lot whether you're using Google as your search engine or whether you're using StartPage Mm -hmm. or whether you are taking photographs with your smart camera with the GPS feature turned on or turned off. You know, so those are the kinds of things that if, if you become aware, you can make minor changes. Like it doesn't take much for me to change the default font from Times New Roman to Arial, but it's a change, and 95% of people never make it. So 95% of people are, you know, using Google and Yahoo and Bing and having every single thing they search for funneled into the giant global brain, providing information about themselves that's very intimate, that's, you know, 5, 10, 15 times a day, some of us even more when we use our search engines. And we're just pouring all of this information out there, but it doesn't have to be that way. So when people start saying, we have no privacy, it's hopeless, move on, I think that's a bad attitude. And the way I liken it, you know, some people will say, well, they're already tracking you this, that, and the other way, so let's just put our FID chips in our flesh, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and, and you know what? We'll on. stop right there. We'll take a station break. And when we get back, we will talk about how major corporations and government are tracking our every move. And maybe not everybody's move, but a lot of people's move. Or that's the plan anyways. Uh, we'll be right back. Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Dr. Katherine Albright joins us here today discussing privacy issues. And, and doctor, tell us about um, RFIDs, what are they and how are they being used to track people's moves and purchases and, and everything we do? Well, RFID stands for Radio Frequency Identification. And what they are, they're tiny microchips hooked up to miniature antennas that can transmit identification information or ID numbers at a distance. And what makes this kind of new and, and different, I suppose, from 
you know, having a, a barcode on the back of your driver's license is that you have to actually take your driver's license out of your wallet in order for somebody to see it. You require line of sight. You have to actually see it. With RFID, you can put a microchip and an antenna in somebody's wallet, you know, in, the, in an ID card in their wallet, and it can transmit not only through their pocket or their purse or their backpack at a distance, but it can literally transmit through walls and through doorways uh, in ways that can be scanned without a person's knowledge. So back in uh, 2002, 2003, I got involved in fighting against a plan that was actually uh, pretty deeply underway at that point to convert the barcode into RFID tags so that every physical product manufactured on Earth would contain a remotely trackable microchip. And all of these products and items, literally, um, you know, there, there are enough unique ID numbers in the RFID numbering system to number every grain of sand on Earth with no duplicates. Is that crazy so, or what? Yeah, so you really could put a unique ID number into everything. And unlike the barcode where if you buy a six-pack of Coke, each one of the cans has the same number on it, in this system, your can of Coke and my can of Coke would have different serial numbers on them. So will it so, have like a hundred numbers, or how how does that work? Um, it's actually it's a ninety six bit code, so it's two to the ninety sixth power, which is a mind blowing um, number of numbers. Uh, that's 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 the one that lets you number every grain of sand with no duplicates. That's an immense number, uh, one with ninety six zeros after it. And the way they do it, they break it down so that there's a, a product portion that says Coca Cola, um, or a company portion. There's a product portion that says soda you know, our, our cola soda. There's another portion that says uh, the size or, or the type, so I would say 12-ounce can. And then there's a unique serial number, like a social security number for each individual can of soda. So every physical object could contain, conceivably and actually pretty easily, one of these unique ID numbers. And then the frequent shopper cards that we've been talking about at the supermarket become very relevant as registration programs. Because now when you buy the six-pack of Coke, each of those individual serial numbers and each of those cans is registered to you specifically as an individual. So down the road, the litter police could pick up a, a discarded can, a, an empty can of Coke by the side of the road, scan it, figure out that you're the person who bought it, and then send you a ticket for littering in the mail. So the the notion that physical objects are just kind of anonymous things in the world would go away, and these physical objects would begin to carry information about who had made them, who had owned them, where they had been seen, where they had traveled to. All of this information would be encoded into the object itself. So where this becomes uh, particularly disturbing is in the case of shoes and clothing. Uh, Macy's department stores and JCPenney's department stores are both now, as of uh, 2013, incorporating RFID into the products that they're selling in their stores. So if you've got an RFID tag that is embedded in the sole of your shoe, it can be invisible, impossible to detect. They can drop it into the rubber, the liquid rubber as they're pouring the mold for the bottom of the shoes and make the shoe around the tag so you'd never even know it was there. And then as you're going about your daily business, you buy this pair of shoes. They scan it with your credit card or your frequent shopper card, and now there's unique ID number 308247, and they know that that's a size 7 Nike running shoe that has now been purchased by Katherine Albrecht, and now we know any time in the future you see 308247, you know it's me. So then you can place reader devices, and this is one of the things that IBM had developed. Uh, IBM took out a patent for something they call the Person Tracking Unit. What a great name. 
And the person tracking unit is the idea that you would place these RFID readers that can read the little signals from the tags and all of our stuff. You'd put them in doorways, you'd put them in floors, ceiling tiles, walls, bathrooms, everywhere, so that every single place a person goes, they would be sending out this cloud of information about all the individual objects they were wearing and carrying. So not only would you know that, it, you know, as I stepped on the reader in the carpet and you transmitted 308247 and looked it up in the database and went, oh, yeah, that's that size 7 Nike running shoe that bought by Catherine Albrecht. I guess she just walked in the store. You would also be able to say, oh, and by the way, Catherine Albrecht also has a baby bottle in her purse. Oh, is she a new mom? Or Catherine Albrecht also has uh, migraine medicine in her purse. Oh, is she having headaches? So all of the information that, um, you know, everything, the, the contents of my wallet, my credit card information, my passport, my driver's license, my everything down to the size and color of my underwear would be transmitted in a split second to the doorway simply by walking through it because of all of these little tags on my stuff that would be squealing about me. So when we found out how absolutely complex this technology, well, the technology is really simple, but the plans to use it were really diabolical. And so my co-author, Liz McIntyre, and I wrote the best-selling, we were a top 10 Amazon best, bestseller book, uh, Spy Chips, How Major Corporations and Government Plan to Track Your Every Move with RFID. And we detailed all of these plans by major corporations, Procter & Gamble and Bell South and Singular Wireless and Bank of America and you name it, all of these companies wanting to get on the bandwagon of being able to place these little bugs, these little physical cookies on our person, on our physical bodies, and on the stuff that we buy and wear and carry, and then use it to track us to an extent that's just inconceivable. So when you put it all together, they call it the Internet of Things and the end point of the Internet of Things, because I could always just throw away the shoes or I could just take off the uh, clothing that's got the tags in it and put on something from the thrift store. So the end point of this is an implant, the RFID microchip implant. And people probably know this because now it's become very commonplace to put them into dogs that are at the vet. It's called uh, chipping, the right? Um, the microchip, yep, the Home Again microchip. You hear about it on TV. They've got the cute little ads. That microchip, is it's the same thing. It's a tiny microchip with an antenna. It transmits a unique ID number. It's encapsulated in glass so that it can be injected into the flesh. And what we discovered, and we actually put an end to human chipping in the U.S. Uh, through this, we discovered that those microchips cause cancer. That when you put them into laboratory animals, what they were doing, they were using these microchips in uh, toxicology studies in laboratories with mice and rats, where they would do one thing to group A and another thing to group B, and group C wouldn't get anything, and then they would study them. And they would microchip these animals so that they could quickly scan them and determine which animals were in which group. Well, there was just one little problem. All the animals that had been microchipped started developing tumors around the microchips, even those who hadn't had anything happen other than getting nice, healthy food and water. And so then they began to uh, microscopically take a closer look at these tumors, and they discovered that the tumors were arising from the site of the microchipping. And these mice and rats were developing tumors, in some cases the size, I mean, if you picture a little mouse with a tumor the size of an apricot, on the side of its body around the microchip. You cut it open and there's the microchip right in the center of the tumor like a, you know, the, the pit of a plum. 
So when that information came out, we began hearing from pet owners around the country whose dogs had begun developing malignant tumors and a number of dogs that died from their implantable microchips. And you can find all that information if you go to chipmenot.com, which is our website on animal chipping. You can see the stories of of all kinds of animals who have developed horrible, um, terrible neurological problems and cancer and everything else from these implanted microchips. So they're really bad for for putting into living beings. Um, At the time that we discovered that, Blue Cross Blue Shield was doing a trial of human microchips There was also a place called the Alzheimer's Community Care Center in West Palm Beach, Florida, that was planning to implant microchips into 200 Alzheimer's patients. Now, these are people who cannot even say no to uh, what was an experiment basically being done on them. They couldn't say no because their disease meant that they didn't even understand what was being done to them. So I flew down there. We headed up a, a prayer vigil. We did a march and a prayer vigil and a protest outside of the Alzheimer's Care Center. We got that trial stopped. We then worked for six months with the Associated Press to release this big study showing that these microchips cause cancer and that the FDA never even looked at that research when they approved the microchips for implantation in human beings. And we got Blue Cross Blue Shield to cancel their trial. And to this day, since 2007, there has been no one else uh, advocating for or marketing human microchips in the United States. So that was a huge victory that we were able to get that stopped. If people want to learn more, I have a 40-page FAQ of information about implantable microchips in human beings and in animals, and that is at antichips.com. You can see the photographs of our our march and our vigil outside of the facility. You can read uh, the Associated Press article and all the information there at antichips.com. And if you have a pet that has been microchipped, people always call me and say, what do I do? Um, Treat it the same way you would treat a breast self-exam. The microchip goes between the shoulder blades or the neck of your dog or cat, and when you're petting them, just regularly and routinely feel around that area. If you feel a lump, if there's any tenderness or swelling or heat, run, do not walk to your veterinarian and have them x-ray the lump. And if they see the microchip in it, have them remove it. Many animals have been saved because their owners found these cancers in time. A lot of times people will say to me, well, how do I get the microchip out of my dog? And the answer is we have yet to find a single veterinarian anywhere in the United Mm. States who will remove a microchip from an animal. And because of the way that they migrate under the flesh and because of the way that they attach to the surface or to the, um, the tissue, it's actually pretty traumatic to try to get one out. So we recommend leave it there if it's already there. If your animal doesn't have one, by, by all means, don't get one. And if it is there, uh, just keep a close eye on it and, and check it regularly, I'd say once a month, to make sure that there's nothing growing around it. Are they microchipping humans anywhere in the world? You know, there's a bogus couple of companies in um, Mexico and South America that are, in their marketing materials, lying to people and claiming that implanting a microchip makes someone, uh, means that you could find them if they were kidnapped. Mm. And they are actively, from what I can tell, now it's hard to tell, they're claiming at least that they have wealthy um, customers who are having these microchips put in them and then paying a monthly fee to maintain them. That is the biggest scam I think I've ever heard of because the way the microchip implant works, we don't have implantable GPS right now on the market. Nobody does. Um, What we have is uh, essentially a a passive RFID tag 
with about a six-inch read range maximum. So if you put one of those, let's, let's just talk about home again for your dog. If you put one of those in your dog and your dog runs away, home again does not have a command center where they can log on to some big GPS map and pinpoint the coordinates of your dog making his way down Main Street. It doesn't work like that because it's not GPS. So because the, the chip in your dog only has a six-inch read range, more like three inches, what it means is that when your dog's out walking down Main Street, oh, well, nobody knows that. If your dog gets picked up by a neighbor or a veterinarian or the pound and taken to a facility like the animal shelter where they have reader devices, then they will run a reader device over your dog's body to see if they get a number back. If they get a number back, they will contact home again, who will then look that up and figure out if you've paid your annual fee. If you haven't paid your annual fee, all bets are off. They won't tell you it's your dog. If you have paid your annual fee, you'll get a phone call saying, hey, we found your dog and he's at this facility. Interesting. So you can't, the the thing about GPS, if you wanted to GPS track a person at this point in time, you'd have to do it through a wristwatch. You could embed a GPS device into a pair of shoes or a backpack. They do that in Japan for kids. Um, There are ways to track people with GPS, but if you wanted it to be an implantable device, you would have to have a power source, a battery, and you can't, it's, it's, it's too big to implant into the human body. You couldn't just inject it easily. It would be a big device the size of, you know, a wristwatch, and even then, its battery pack would run out of juice after six months or so and would have to be replaced. So probably the closest thing you could get to that would be like a pacemaker where people literally have a plug hanging out of their chest that they plug in at night and, uh, you know, keep the, keep the juice flowing. That's what you would have to do to have an implantable GPS device. And I'm not aware of such things being on the market at this time. So do you think that's coming? Do you think they're working on that? I think that what is probably going to happen is even creepier. I think what's probably going to happen is that we will find a way to use the glucose cycle in the human body that powers us to power electronics. And when that happens, look out. Because we already know that Google, and I want to get back to them, um, Google, the founders of Google, when asked what they want to become, they said, like, the mind of God. And this company is absolutely mind-blowingly scary. Um, one of the things that they'd like to do is have, literally, they've said this, brain implants in us that would be able to answer our questions before we ask them. So if you're going to have a brain implant that's going to be hooked up to the Internet, that's going to use RFID, it's going to use the cell phone system, it's going to use electromagnetic frequencies and radio waves and you name it, and it's going to have to have some kind of a power source. And I think the most likely power source is going to actually be figuring out how to use the actual food that we eat and the glucose that our muscles use for energy in order to power electronics and and technology in the body. And I think that that probably is at some point in humanity's future. Now, what's really creepy, if you want to talk Google, is that Google just hired Ray Kurzweil, the singularity guy, as their head of, of innovation. So Google has now essentially married itself to the guy who wants to create the post-human, transhuman future in which we no longer even have physical bodies. We just upload our, our consciousness or our soul, as it were, into some vast virtual reality database and don't even exist in these packages of meat any longer. 
So that's ultimately, when Google hired that guy, I said, okay, now I know for sure where they're going because I would put him as, as one of the most frightening future uh, thinkers that's out there. And a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I, I, we haven't gotten into it here, but I am a born-again Bible-believing Christian. And a lot of times people will say, well, you know, religion has nothing to do with technology. And I say, well, check out what Ray Kurzweil has to say. Because when you start talking to those futurist guys and they get all excited about the singularity, the point at which we become one with our, with our technology, the point at which we toss away our biological humanity and become these um, uh, digital entities, that is a, that's a religion, believe me. And they've got every bit the same fervent evangelism for their version of the future as I do for mine. <laughs> you know, Catherine, it's, it's pretty overwhelming the amount of information that's out there and how we're being attacked in so many different ways. Um, and you have been such a such a leader in, in getting this kind of information out there in so many ways. Um, let's talk quickly. We've got one, one more thing that, that I want to bring up. The RFID with schools in the San Antonio case that yes. you've been really involved with. Yeah, so uh, this summer, uh, the, 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 one of the poorest school districts in the state of Texas, which is the Northside Independent School District in San Antonio, where it's primarily single parents, there's a lot of parents uh, serving overseas, you know, with one parent gone, there's a lot of uh, students on, on food stamps. It's, it's truly a, a, a very um, depressed part of Texas there in that area of, of San Antonio. And they chose that district to trial a technology that I think is truly horrifying. It's probably the worst application I've ever seen of RFID other than implants in Alzheimer's patients. Um, what they've done is they've required 4,200 kids in that district to wear tracking beacons based on RFID around their necks from the time they leave home, get on the bus, get to school. They are emitting a 140-foot swath of a unique ID number that's emanating from a tag around their necks. So they have their lanyards, uh, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the thing you put around your neck and hang your ID from. The IDs have two button batteries in them, and they don't have an off switch. There's no way to ever turn them off. So whether these kids are at school or at home, they're beaming out 140 feet of their personal unique ID number. The school has placed reader devices every 100 feet in the ceiling so they can pinpoint the precise location of every kid once a minute all day long throughout the entire school day. And so they pinpoint whether you're in the bathroom, whether you're in the nurse's station, whether you got up to get a drink of water, whether you're in math class, whether you sat next to Sally or, you know, Kendra at the lunch table today, all of that being recorded into their database. So we got together in, uh, before school started with uh, our colleagues in the privacy community, so the ACLU and EPIC and EFF and all the big privacy groups around the world, and we issued a position statement in opposition to this. We also uh, flew out and supported Andrea Hernandez, who is the 10th grade honor student who is opposing this. On the first day of school, we, we uh, helped her to put together a protest outside of the school, and, and we held picket signs and spoke to the media and opposed this, um, helped her line up uh, media interviews all over, all over the world, really, to, to talk about this. And right now, uh, the school, she has refused to wear it. Uh, for religious reasons. She believes it is conditioning people to accept the mark of the beast. And uh, to be honest, I, I, I agree with her. 
Um, but you don't have to take a religious view to hate this technology. It's truly appalling that they're doing this, and especially doing it to kids without any political power. They can't vote the bums out of office. They're legally required to go to school. They're not 18. They don't have any political power, and their parents in many cases, are people who are not in a position to speak up because they don't have enough education themselves. Some of them are not even legally in the country. I mean, it's 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 truly a, a captive population down there. And this is a test case? This is a... This yeah, so what's happened is the school, um, they started putting pressure on Andrea. Uh, they didn't let her vote for homecoming queen. They made her stand in a separate lunch line. They've They've done all these really petty little things to her. And then finally, when she wouldn't capitulate, they expelled her. So they've told her that if she does not wear this tracking device around her neck, that she cannot continue to attend the school. And so she has um, now filed a lawsuit against them. And we are awaiting right now as we speak the ruling from the judge as to whether she will be allowed to continue at the school or whether the school's decision to expel her is going to stand. So we're waiting with bated breath, and if people want to learn more, they can go to chipfreeschools.com, which is our activist website there, chipfreeschools.com, and that's where we'll post uh, the information when we get it. You can also read the position paper that we put together with all the privacy groups on my website at spychips.com. That's our RFID book website. And we will have all these links to the websites that we've discussed today on Living Wealthy Radio. Um, Catherine, you have a radio show that you're getting ready to go on the air, so we're going to have to to sign off here. Um, But you're the host of the Dr. Catherine Catherine Albright Show on GCN Radio Network, and all of your shows are archived on your website. You can also listen live, and that website is CatherineAlbright.com. It's Catherine Albright. It's A-L-B. R-E-C-H-T, CatherineAlbrecht.com. But there's an easier way, which is my initials, KMAshow.com, KMAshow.com. Or you can just go to StartPage.com, the world's most private search engine, which I encourage everybody to use instead of Google, and just look up Catherine Radio, and I'll be one of the first search hits you find. You can find me there pretty pretty easily. So it's KMAshow.com. And uh, a practical solution, because I always feel like I leave people discouraged when I talk about all this dark stuff, is I have kind of switched from just talking about the negatives to really working on solutions. And one of the solutions that I have um, helped to create is the Start Page website. It is the alternative to Google. Startpage.com does not record your IP address, makes no record of any visits from anybody. We have no idea who uses us. If we got subpoenaed or hacked, God forbid, there would be nothing to get because we keep no records. And what we do is we submit your request to Google, get real-time Google results for you, clean them of all tracking cookies and nastiness, and then serve them back to you with 100% privacy at startpage.com. And it's fast. It is. It's fast, and it's free, and it is third-party certified. You can add it to your browser, make it your homepage, and I'm encouraging people to take the Google needle out of their arm. And then the final thing I will say, we're coming out, as I said at the beginning of the hour, with um, private email, which will uh, start mail. And if people would like to uh, beta test our new email when it comes out this spring, they can send an email to beta, B-E-T-A as in alpha beta, at startpage.com, beta at startpage.com, and uh, just let us know that you heard it on this radio program. Perfect. Um, well, Living Wealthy Radio, there you go. Living Wealthy Radio. Well, we, we want to say, Catherine, that you are certainly someone to follow if you're interested in preserving um, 
our, our civil liberties, our privacy, um, the information that you present on your show is fantastic, and um, just so glad that we had a chance to get together today. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm two hours live every Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 Eastern or 3 to 5 Central, and you can find it at kmashow.com. I also do a show on Saturdays through the, the lunch hour, and uh, would love to, to uh, encourage new listeners to tune in and check it out. Fantastic. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa Seam online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. What if there was a place where your hard-earned cash could grow safely and sanely without being pilfered by bankers, Wall Street, tax collectors, or other persons of dubious character. A place where you could say no to the motion sickness-inducing ups and downs of the stock market. Where you didn't have to grovel on your hands and knees every time you wanted to borrow money from some tight-fisted banker who collects all your private data and then turns you down. Such a world sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, it isn't. All you need to do is call toll-free right now and ask for your Living Wealthy Financial Information Packet. It costs nothing and it will tell you exactly what you need to do to chart a more prosperous financial course and take back what belongs to you. So, do it. Call right now. one 800 3820830 That's 1-800-382-0830. Or visit our website at www.livingwealthyfinancial.com. You'll be glad you did. If you're a business owner who wants to sell your successful company, then you need to pay careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. Selling a business in today's crazy-making economy is not for the faint of heart. A successful sale requires courage, resolve, and a big pair of um, free selling tools. Get your free risk analysis tool and special report today from the only company that can help you sell your business in 49 days or less and pay zero taxes. Go to www.deltabusinessservices.com forward slash exit coach to download yours today. That's www.deltabusinessservices.com or call us at 210-369-4161. Tell them the guy with the sexy voice sent you.